Chuck, let me ask you this. Why do you point to the fact that the cities that were built before World War II, in other words, pre-1940, that they are what we should be using as our models. Why on earth would we go back in time 70 years to, to, uh, to model our current cities on? Times have changed. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. Getting towards the end of the year here, and I want to start off by saying thank you to all of you who have gone to our website at membership.strongtowns.org and become a member of the organization. We are now in our third full year as a 501c3 nonprofit. Thanks to Jim Kuman, our executive director who started this year. We're actually starting to build kind of a back office type of operation, if you want to call it that. It's going to allow us to do a lot more, allow us to kind of project a little bit better, be a little bit more focused and organized. <laughs> That's what happens when you grow beyond just one person with limited capacities like we have been for a while here. So really a very important step for our organization. And if you would like to support us, if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy our blog, if you appreciate what we do and the voice that we're adding to the conversation we're having here on a national level and really on a North American level, not forgetting our friends up there in Canada, we've been up there three times now and uh, scheduled to go back again. Very excited about that. If you uh, value this conversation and what we add to the marketplace of ideas, please go to our website, membership.strongtowns.org. Sign up to be a member. We have memberships as low as $25. So there really is no excuse for anybody out there who wants to support us to go out there and be part of what we're doing. There are some benefits that we've set up for members. We certainly have a history of having a fairly intimate contact with the members that we have and the people that uh, have been active in our organization. If you want to be one of those, go and sign up. We'd love to have you as part of the team. A couple of weeks ago, I did a radio interview as a preview to a curbside chat I was doing in Huntington, West Virginia. It was a very odd interview. And in fact, I've done, gosh, I don't know how many, I'm, I'm sure I'm in the hundreds now of radio and uh, newspaper interviews over the years. And I've really never had one go quite like this. Generally, the radio interviews that I do go in one of two directions. Either one, the person is really into what we're talking about, is going to have me on because I'm adding some content that they think is really valuable and they kind of set me up and let me run with it. The other kind are the ones that are basically a little bit clueless, haven't done their homework, and are just kind of searching for things, and they're more than happy to let you kind of run with the show if you're coherent and and can speak well on the topic. I haven't had one, and I've kind of been waiting, where they kind of called into question some of the base assumptions of what we were doing. This is that one. And as you'll hear in a minute, this is what Jim Kuman, our executive director, called a conversation with a mayor. The radio show hosts here were two former mayors of West Huntington. They have a radio show and started off a little bit offended by the notion that an organization would question what cities are doing. I'm going to let you listen to the whole thing before I make any more comments. 
after the little program here, I'm going to come back and pull out a few excerpts and chat about them because I think there's a couple of really important insights when it comes to communicating the Strong Towns message, particularly to public officials that we can glean from this. So this is the uh, Tri-State Viewpoint is the name of the radio show. I'll let you listen to that now and I'll be right back. Supertalk 94.1 FM and AM 930 WRVC present Tri-State Viewpoint. To join the program, call 304-399-8255 or toll free at 877-420-8255. Now, from the Kindred Capitol Building in Huntington, Gene Dean and Bobby Nelson. Hey, welcome to Tuesday's edition of Tri-State Viewpoint, where the Tri-State comes to talk five days a week, Gene. Uh, and we always have uh, interesting <laughs> topics, sometimes interesting Thank you, So uh, <laughs> you, uh, you have a guest today, I yes, believe. Yes, I do, now that my on button is actually on. <laughs> okay, Bobby, yes. Um, we do have actually two guests this afternoon in the second half of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be talking with Congressman Nick Rahal from Washington. Lots of questions to ask uh, Congressman Rahal. But in the first half of the show, we are going to speak with Chuck Marone. Now, he is a practicing engineer and will actually be here on Marshall's campus tomorrow night uh, because he wants to talk about the way cities in general... Uh, actually do things to improve or even install their infrastructure. Uh, So how are you, Chuck? Fantastic. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to know that you are, and I'm going to give you a warning right now because (laughs) I know you don't think very much of the way that municipalities have been handling their infrastructure needs. And so Bobby Nelson and I, we have both served as mayor of this city of 50,000 people for eight years each, and so we may give you a little bit of a hard time, but we want to hear what you've got to say. So what is it that you think municipalities are doing wrong? Well, in general, cities post-World War II have been put in kind of a difficult spot. The way we have grown and built our cities over the last 60 years, largely funded by money from outside of the community. As an engineer, we were always tasked with how do we get that grant How do we get that low-interest loan? How do we get the private sector to come in and make an investment? And you've watched cities over 60 years grow very quickly in a horizontal direction. Lots of pipe, lots of roads, lots of streets, lots of sidewalks. That transaction, that new growth, from a local government standpoint, is almost always looked at in a positive way. We don't pay hardly anything for that. Yet all that new stuff now becomes a public burden to maintain. The first generation we did this, fantastic amounts of growth. All of a sudden, in the second generation of doing this, when the public now had to ante up some money to keep this all going, you know, to maintain all these miles and miles of pipe and pumps and valves and streets and everything else, it became a burden. And you started to see public debt creep up. You started to see a little bit more desperation in terms of how do we keep this all going. We're now in the third generation of building like this, and what we find at the local government level, are vast amounts of liabilities, miles and miles of stuff that we're charged with not only fixing and repairing, but also providing service to fire protection, police protection, what have you, and a tax base that's just not up to that challenge. 
Well, now you mentioned horizontal growth. Well, the alternative to horizontal is presumably vertical, and that simply isn't possible in uh, in most municipalities, or at least small municipalities. So what exactly did you mean, Chuck, by talking about horizontal growth? Well, in very small cities, you know, cities uh, 10,000 or less. I live in a city that's 13,000. If you look at the historical development pattern of those cities, there was always horizontal growth. But at the same time there was horizontal growth, there was also modest vertical growth, and there was also a continuing intensification of the growth that was there. Buildings would be torn down and rebuilt, or they would be improved so that they had more value. What we've lost post-World War II is we've lost that incremental vertical growth and that incremental intensification, and we've replaced it with a hyper-horizontal pattern. But vertical growth is not always possible in a lot of uh, a, a lot of areas. I mean, not physically possible. The tallest building in this city, for example, is only 15 stories high. And actually, that was one that was built many, many years ago. It's not a new building. So I, I, I'm still confused about horizontal versus vertical growth. From a vertical standpoint, certainly not talking about towers. I mean, you can go even to a very intensely developed city like Washington, D.C., and you've got a six-story height maximum, you're not talking about needing to build huge towers and things that reach up to the sky. For most cities, the predominant post-World War II construction has been one story. All of your big box stores pretty much are one story. All of your strip malls are one story. Your ranch houses are one story. We have built a huge amount of stuff at one story, and not only at one story, but very spread out from each other with huge distances in between. That's all distances that are not being supported by the current tax base. Hey, um, this is Bobby Nelson, uh, the other mayor on the line here, (laughs) and uh, uh, I have a little bit of difficulty understanding where you're coming from. Uh, You talk about a a kind of a Ponzi scheme growth. You talk about the post-development from World War II, which was 60-some years ago. Uh, What about the modern day where... uh, there is uh, public-private partnerships where bonds are issued, where infrastructure needs are met. Uh, uh, if I read you right, cities would have to wait till they have enough money to do anything before they could really uh, improve their infrastructure or replace it. As far as your last statement, that's certainly not true. I mean, there's a ton that cities can do. It's just at a very different scale. It takes money, though. You're talking about this. Uh, from what I get from you, you're interested in the bottom line, how the uh, profit can be made from these, by these development uh-huh. projects. I'm absolutely interested in the bottom line. Uh, cities have to be solvent in order to maintain all this stuff. In order to keep everything going, cities have to bring in as much money as they're going to spend. And when they're not doing that, they're not being fiscally responsible. Yeah, but they're spending money to do infrastructure. A lot of times they have to finance that with bonds. That takes care of a pressing municipal need that officials are obligated to provide or at least should be providing their citizens. So if they don't make the investment either in the selling of bonds or other means, uh, which will provide a return for those who invest them. But, uh, uh, yeah, the bottom line is important, but also uh, part of a municipality function is to serve the citizens with certain facilities that they need, like water, sewer, roads, things like that. Well, I think part of that is kind of convenient. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but if you look at it, taking on debt is not an investment for the city. That might be an investment for an investor who buys the debt, but from a city standpoint, we have to pay that debt back. 
And so the question has to be, what are we actually going to create in terms of growth and development, and what portion of that growth and development are we going to capture back in taxes and revenue that will allow us to make good on that debt? Are you, saying that, are you saying that we should not undertake any projects, infrastructure-wise or other, until we actually have the money to pay for them? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that when we do undertake projects, we have to make sure that we actually have a revenue stream to pay them back. Well, of so course right we now, do. Of course we do. But that's, that's why we issue bonds. That's why citizens uh, yeah. finance these things, because it's to their economic interest. If you have good roads, good infrastructure, you bring in jobs. And jobs is what ha- has a community grow. But if you have to look at the bottom line in terms of your return, uh, that may uh, really infringe on your ability to get something done in a timely manner. Amen. I totally agree. That That's the point right there. If you have to look at something in terms of your return, it, it is going to change what you do. If we say to ourselves we have to actually be solvent, not just cash flow this particular project, you know, maybe we get the private sector to invest a little bit, maybe we get the federal and state government to put some money into it, but we actually have to be when we are agreeing to take on the maintenance of miles of roads, miles of streets, miles of pipe, we actually have to create a tax base with that that is sufficient enough to maintain that over the long term. If we don't do that, we're just exchanging a cash benefit today for an enormous long-term liability. And that's really the uh, well, story I, I of post-World War II I, US. I disagree with you. I think in, in terms of uh, running a city, it's an investment. You make an investment in these facilities to not only provide services to the citizens, but also as a catalyst to bring in jobs or to bring in economic activity. Uh, do, are you saying that uh, the states themselves or, say, West Virginia should be responsible solely for building the highways that we operate? The, wow. Uh, I, the I mean, if, you, if you're talking about, okay, we need to make an investment to create jobs and, and opportunity for people. I totally agree. I totally agree. But when we make those investments, we also have a responsibility to make sure that we're actually going to get enough money back to cover that investment. I mean, it's not an investment. It's a subsidy. If you're not covering the money, you're, you're going to wind up raising taxes on everybody unless you're balancing your book. Well, you that's do. simply good management. That's simply good management of the city administration. Not only that, okay. but before you undertake a project, you look at the cost and you scale it out and you find the revenue means. And a lot of times uh, it may simply be the sale of bonds that you could finance, which gives a, a return to the investor and gets the project done within budget. So uh, to me, that's there's a simple a, process. There's a huge difference between the first life cycle and the second life cycle. We are genius in this country at building things. We, we have fine-tuned our system to allow us to build things. What we're not good at is maintaining them. And the reason we're not good at maintaining them is because what we build is incredibly low returning. It gives us back as a government very, very little in comparison to what we spend. And because of that, we're seeing every city across the country just buried in all of these liabilities for maintenance because largely the kind of approach you guys are, are talking about here, you know, if we can cash flow it, if we can make it work, if we can borrow the money, it's all good. It's not good. We actually have to ask a tougher set of questions. Jack, uh, I'd actually need to get some of our <laughs> sponsors, I guess you would say, who actually pay the bills for our program here. I need to get them on the air for a couple of minutes, so will you stay with us while we do that? Yeah, no problem. Okay. Our guest is Chuck Marone, who will be here in Huntington speaking tomorrow night on Marshall's campus. And we have more questions for him. And, of course, if you'd like to call in and ask a question or make a comment, we are at 304-420-8255. 
or 304-399-8255. Stay with us. We will take a couple of minutes here for breaks, and then we'll be back on Supertalk 94.1 FM and AM 930. Now, back to Tri-State Viewpoint on Supertalk 94.1 FM and AM 930. Hey, welcome back to uh, Tri-State Viewpoint. We have a uh, guest on the show. His name is Charles Moran. Is that the correct pronunciation, Mr. Moran? <laughs> it's close enough. Moran. Moran. Okay. okay. You're good. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, uh, no, no problem. Um, I, I just wondering, you uh, uh, have uh, started out just blogging about this on the Internet, and, and that led to you establishing your own business called Strong Cities, which is like a nonprofit uh, uh, help organization. Do you do you have clients, cities? Do you provide uh, uh, a number of uh, clients' uh, services? Uh, for example, uh, have you approached the city of Huntington with your services? No. In fact, I did start out just blogging years ago. I'm a civil engineer. I'm also a land use planner. And I was working just in central Minnesota, where I'm from, started writing this blog kind of as my own therapy just to see if there's anybody out here who is seeing things the way that I was. You know, when you work for government, you tend to get into a, a, a silo as an engineer or a planner. So after a year of doing that, a friend of mine said, you really have a lot of stuff here. You should start a nonprofit. And with his help, we started this group, Strong Towns. Right now, all I do is write, blog, talk to people like this, and travel around the country and, and share this message. Well, I just, uh, read so the, uh, I just read a little bit about this on the story that was in the local newspaper. Yeah. But uh, you come across, some, to me, like you're anti-government, especially the federal government, maybe state and local governments that they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to manage their money. They don't know how to take care of infrastructure. And so you've got to get someone like you or some think tank group to come in and, and show them how to do things. That, that doesn't set well with me. <laughs> well, I, I think that it's important to understand a couple of things. First, we're certainly not anti-federal government, but the federal government and the local governments do have very different long-term objectives. From a federal government do you believe in federal and uh, state uh, partnership? Do you believe that we can partnership with the federal government to provide the needs of the absolutely. community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you th- do, do you think that the federal government is a good example for cities to follow? No, not at all. Oh, okay. Just no, wanted to make cities, that plain. Well, at the end of the day, cities have to balance their budget. Cities mm-hmm. have to be able to pay for the things that they commit to. And if they don't do that... You have a Detroit situation where lots of people get hurt, lots of people go without, and it, it's very, very harmful to communities. What about cities and states that are constitutionally required to have balanced budgets every year? Uh, you don't have the Detroits in West Virginia. The, every, uh, the state and the uh, municipalities are obligated by the Constitution to operate a balanced budget. And if they have to cut services or add taxes, that's why you elect people. They have to look at this and do it. So uh, here in West Virginia... Uh, if we did not have, in addition to the requirement of the balanced budget for local governments and state, if we didn't have some assistance from the federal government uh, in doing a number of infrastructure projects, we got one right downtown here called Pullman Square. If we hadn't had assistance from the federal government, we wouldn't have the kind of economic uh, draw that we have in the central part of our city, and it, it's working out fine. What happened in Detroit, the tragedy is not the bankruptcy. I mean, the bankruptcy is just the fiscal side working itself out. The, the terrible thing that happened in Detroit is the government not being able to meet its commitments, actually not being able to provide police protection, fire protection, good schooling, good maintenance of the streets, street lights, all that stuff that we depend on. 
And I don't think you're suggesting me that every local government in West Virginia is completely solvent and flush with cash and meeting all of those little obligations. They're not uh, flush with cash, a, but they're meeting their obligations, and at the end of the fiscal year, they're not in the red. And oh, if they are Detroit in the red, they're in trouble. Detroit now, Detroit, you're talking about, well, yeah, but it wasn't the government. It was the politicians and the kind of special interest uh, activity in that city. There are a lot of cities where the people were elected screw the city, but it isn't the government. Chuck, let me ask you this. Why do you point to the fact that the cities that were built before World War II, in other words, pre-1940, that they are what we should be using as our models? Why on earth would we go back in time 70 years to to model our current cities on? Times have changed. Well, times have certainly changed. It's important to note that in North America, we're the only place in the world that has built in the style we have built, which is dramatically different than what's been done anywhere in the world or anywhere in human history. If you look at cities prior to the Great Depression, they were built on a foundation, a template, so to speak, that was financially really, really robust. In other words, for every foot of liability that the city took on, for every foot of street, every foot of pipe, every foot of sidewalk, there was enormous financial return created from that. That is the transformation that has changed today. When you look at the return that we get per increment of liability or investment that we take on, it is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what we were getting prior to the Great Depression. I hope that when you're in Huntington tomorrow night uh, to speak, and by the way, I believe, listeners, that that meeting is at 6.30 tomorrow night uh, and uh, will be on Marshall's campus. But uh, when you come to Huntington, I hope that you'll have the opportunity to come downtown and see what uh, Bobby mentioned a little bit ago, Pullman Square, because there is a fine example of a city and the federal government working together to put something in place that has been hugely successful in, in the economic development of the yeah, city. Across a few uh, bridges that are built across the Ohio. With well, that there. also <laughs> helps. That's right. We, you do know we're in the tri-state area of Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia? Yeah, I, I can't wait to see it. Good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it should be interesting. I mean, uh, I didn't see who's sponsoring you tomorrow night. Uh, is it Marshall University or who is spo- exactly? Gosh. You know what? You're putting me on the spot, and I really don't know the answer to that one, so I apologize. Well, the person that we heard about you from is actually a man named Kit Anderson. And uh, Kit, at one time, worked for uh, one of the departments of city government and is now in some capacity uh, on Marshall's campus. So uh, Kit is the one who actually um, brought your program to our attention. And it was just rather intriguing to a couple of former mayors. uh, And uh, we, we thought we'd like to talk to you about it. But this meeting tomorrow night, I'm sure, is open to the public. Please, yes, yes, very much, open to the public, and we hope, you know, I hope you two show up. I hope that uh, <laughs> as many people come as possible. We're yeah, I'd like to find out about this uh, Ponzi scheme you're talking about tomorrow yeah. night. Yeah, That'll be you interesting. Know what? <laughs> I think that you would find it very enlightening. Yeah, I'm sure I, uh, uh, we had a few of those around Huntington. I think they're in jail now. <laughs>
Oh, by the way, listeners, the, the meeting tomorrow night at 6.30 is in the Marshall University Foundation Hall there on Fifth Avenue across from the uh, Student Center. So if you'd like to be present there, and um, uh, I'm afraid I have a commitment tomorrow night, and I will not be there, Chuck, but uh, uh, Bobby, maybe you, you'll be able to represent us there. I might show up. I'd be interested in checking Mr. <laughs> I want to hear about the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> We're not giving you a hard time. It's just sometimes we have, uh, you know, snake oil people who come through town and then want to offer well, Actually, good Bobby, things. we do have a couple of minutes here. So why would you consider this to be a Ponzi scheme, what the cities are doing now? Why is it a Ponzi scheme? Well, in, in a sense, it has the mechanisms of a Ponzi scheme. When you get the immediate cash benefit of the new growth. You guys have talked about the federal project. I don't know this project, but I've seen, you know, hundreds of federal projects across the country where you come in, you get the outside money, you build whatever it is. It's fantastic. You get growth, you get jobs, everything is great. But then you go forward a generation and the next generation says, oh my gosh, we have this huge thing we just built that now we have to fix. Where's the money for that going to come from? And if the tax base doesn't grow, as robustly as the, the other side of the ledger, the liabilities grow, then financially you're in a bind. Well, and would you say that uh, does the interstate system qualify as a Ponzi scheme then? The interstate system is, a, yes, is a huge <laughs> mess from a financial standpoint. And, and you can look at the $2 trillion that the American Society of Civil Engineers says we need just to get it maintained, not to build more, but just to keep what we have. And you see that there's a system where the federal government pays 90%, the locals pay 10 but then the locals pay to maintain it. And what happens is there's a huge incentive to build a lot more, and there's very little incentive to maintain what you have. So are you, saying we, should, are you saying we should not have built it then? I think we should have built the interstate system. I think we should have built it a lot differently, and we should have had some mechanisms that would have dialed back, in a sense, our appetite for continually building more and more and more when we got past the point where it was going to be financially productive. You know, Charles, West Virginia is known as a mountain state, and it was considered prior to the uh, building of the two interstates that go through our town, our, our state, and the Appalachian Regional System. We had been all very, very inaccessible, which meant that economic development would have practically been nothing. So uh, uh, I, I thank God every day that we were able to, uh, to get funds to do that, even if we pay 10% of the maintenance costs. <laughs> Chuck, I'm so sorry, but our producer is telling us that we need to actually get off the air here. But we look forward to your visit tomorrow night, and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. This is Tri-State Viewpoint, and uh, we will be back with you right after news and weather with Congressman Nick Rahal. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Tri-State Viewpoint on Supertalk 94.1 FM and AM 930. Hey, welcome back to Tri-State Viewpoint. Gene Dean, Bobby Nelson here five days a week. If you'd like to give us a call, our numbers are 304-399-8255, talk We always have exciting, interesting, and I think eloquent guests on our show, and I oh, think we, we have one on right now, even though he's a politician. <laughs> well, actually, uh, we're, we're talking, of course, about Congressman Nick Rahal, and actually the congressman uh, called in a few minutes ago, and we didn't want to keep him hanging on the telephone, so he will be joining us just uh, in, in a few minutes here. But uh, we do have mm-hmm. interesting guests, and sometimes we disagree with them, such as with our first guest today. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. we, I mean, uh, we have 
ask questions, they want to come on, or we invite them, and uh, we try to be civil. I I just don't buy what he's selling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... uh, I I mean, Gene, you and I had to, we had to deal with budgets and infrastructure improvements, and Mm -hmm. uh, you find a way to get it done, and sure, a lot of these were built years ago, but, but, you know, bonds are sold, and people invest and get a return on those bonds. That's right. And a lot of times, these are short-term projects uh, that don't take long to construct, but they last for a long time. And sure, you're going to have some maintenance costs, but uh, you, you everything that. requires maintenance. Our homes, our cars, everything has even to be maintained. Buy, for babies, you even have to buy new diapers every now and then. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Maintain the baby. <laughs> well, it's a um, uh, it's an ongoing thing. Sure, that the the, the uh, uh, cost of trying to maintain the infrastructure is, you know, it goes up, but, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's necessary. It's an economic investment. All right, that's it. Um, <laughs> for those of you that have not heard our conversation with an engineer video, I put it out about, boy, it was three years ago. And it is these two digital bears talking back and forth. One of them represents a project engineer and the other one represents just a, a citizen who is on this project and the citizen has some questions for the engineer. The thing about this video is that the two of them are just speaking in completely different languages. They're both speaking English, but the language that they're using, the frame of references, their understanding of what's going on is so vastly different that when they're asking questions, they just are speaking right past each other. The person talks about the widening of the road and the engineer says, Oh yeah, we've got this clear zone here. And then the other bear figures out that the clear zone is actually their front yard. And they're like, well, I, I don't, you know, want all the trees gone from my front yard. And he's like, well, that, that's what we got to do to be safe. The two of them talk right past each other. And I think the thing that is insightful about that video is just how you can have in that case, an eight minute conversation in my case here on this radio show and over 20 minute conversation with people. And be talking about essentially the same set of issues, but in a completely different realm and a completely different context and just speak right past each other. I want to focus in on three points out of this thing. And I apologize to all of you who I've done this before. I'm listening to someone on the radio and I'm answering the questions myself and I'm yelling about what they should have said. I'm sure there were a lot of instances where <laughs> you were all listening to this going, Chuck, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you say that? I, I don't think any of it would have mattered. But I want to go back and I want to look at three kind of the overarching points that were brought up and try to talk them through and maybe develop some strategies for how we address people who approach things the way these two former mayors did. The first one has to deal with bonding. And the one guy brought up bonding many times. You know, we'll just go out and get a bond issue. We'll just go out. And essentially, it's important to understand that what bonding is, is borrowing. It's the way cities take on debt. Cities take on debt to finance projects. Bonds are then issued. People buy those bonds. Businesses buy those bonds. Pension funds buy those bonds. And they pay a rate of interest to those investors. But for the city, it is the mechanism whereby they go out and take on debt. The city doesn't just go up to the bank and say, look, we're doing this $10 million project. We'd like a loan. Uh, bank is just not going to do that. That's done on the bond market. Those are municipal bonds. I want to play... One of the clips here that I think kind of captures this mindset the best. And then we're going to chat a little bit about it. 
Not only that, okay. but before you undertake a project, you look at the costs and you scale it out and you find the revenue means. And a lot of times uh, it may simply be the sale of bonds that you could finance, which gives it a, a return to the investor and gets the project done within budget. So uh, to me, that's a simple process. It's a very simple process. I love the way he describes this because for a lot of people in government today and a lot of staff members, a lot of city administrators, a lot of engineers, it is a very simple process. You have a project you want to do for whatever reason, you go out and find a way to make it work. Maybe you get some state money, maybe you get some federal money, but if not, you know, you can always go to the bond market and essentially turn the cash you have on hand and the revenue stream that you're going to have over the next five years, eight years, 15 years, 20 years. I've even seen 40 year bond issues. You turn that revenue stream into, you know, the annual payment on a debt bring all that money into today and be able to spend it on a project. Very simple process. I'm not arguing that it's not a simple process. It's almost too simple. In fact, I've long advocated for more autonomy at the local level, more ability to set tax systems, more ability to you know decide on a whole range of issues that most cities are limited by the state governments on what they're able to do. But the one thing that I have argued that we should consider limiting cities' ability is to borrow. When you borrow money, you are committing not only today, but you're committing future generations to debt payments and limiting the flexibility of those cities and those future generations to make any type of substantive policy change. I have seen cities where there was nobody on the city council less than 60 years old that were taking on 20 and 30 year bond issuances for things that were just little like road maintenance projects. And you look at this transaction and you're like, you know, how is this even moral from a, a generational standpoint? But let's just look at this from an ease of transaction. The host here is saying, you know, I, I don't understand you, Chuck. I mean, we just go out and when we got to do a project, we borrow the money and we make it happen. And you hear me in this kind of parallel universe saying, okay, that's fine. But if the revenue that you're getting from the properties within that project is not enough to pay for that thing over the life cycle of the project, you're essentially borrowing from the capacities of other parts of your city and spending it in one place to the detriment of every place else. Huntington, West Virginia was a really great town. It had a really solid downtown core. It had a really great little strip. They talked about that Pullman Square, I think is what it's called, that you know vaunted public-private partnership that had federal dollars and all this. It's actually a nice little investment. And the area around that is quite nice. But then you have literally miles and miles and miles of the most low-returning, low-value, horizontal crap that you're ever going to run into. It was like an endless you know, line of taco joints and strip malls. And the sad thing is, is as you kind of went through Huntington and got out of this core area, the historic part of it, and got out to the other parts of the city, you could see how the first generation of this expansion had now been abandoned. And the second generation of it was in decline. And the third generation on kind of the very far edge was where the action was at. But you didn't even have to be like very intuitive <laughs> to just sit back and look at their own city and look at how the decline had set in as you went generation to generation to generation. They're trying to put all this back with borrowed money. Huntington is no different than most cities that I run into 
who look at bonding and borrowing money as a way to kind of solve the problem that they have in front of them, which is we don't have enough money to maintain all this stuff. What is being overlooked and what is not being factored and considered in here is that the problem is not one of immediate revenue. The problem is not that we don't have the money to do these things. The problem is that all of these investments that we've made, whether through bonding, whether through private public partnerships, whether through you know federal grants or state grants or whatever they are, all of those investments have not yielded a tax base sufficient enough to maintain everything that we've built. Why? Because everything that we built post-World War II has this enormous horizontal component to it. Everything is spread out. Everything is auto-oriented. And the problem with that is that the yields are really, really low. If you have a business and you have 25 feet of pipe and sidewalk and road in front of your house, the dynamics of that business, especially if you've got an apartment up above and a residence on the third floor, or you've got offices and you've, you know, kind of stacking things vertically, the dynamics financially on that is vastly different than if you've got a place out on the edge of town that has a hundred foot of frontage, a big old parking lot, and neighbors that are also in decline. The finances on that are just vastly different. And for cities, we treat them the same. And in fact, we favor the one on the edge that has the limited financial wherewithal. This, to me, is perhaps the most ignorant thing that politicians, city administrators, engineers do, which is to resort to debt to pay for just ongoing maintenance. When your tax base is not sufficient to support the things that you need to do in the city just to keep it going, the answer is not debt. The answer is you've got to grow your tax base. You've got to limit your liabilities. You've got to make more productive use out of what you've already built. That's a really hard thing to do. That is a much more difficult question than how do we find the money today to cash flow this debt so that we can do things right now. And quite frankly, if these two politicians were running my city, I would consider them two of the most irresponsible people I've ever run into. Because to say we just solve these problems with debt by taking on more debt and not worrying about the tax base, not worrying about the long-term solvency of the city, not worrying about the numbers and the return on investment, to me, that's the most irresponsible kind of government that we can have. About this, uh, from what I get from you, you're interested in the bottom line, how the uh, profit can be made from these by these development uh-huh. projects. I'm absolutely interested in the bottom line. Cities have to be solvent in order to maintain all this stuff. In order to keep everything going, uh-huh. cities have to bring in as much money as they're going to spend. And when they're not doing that, they're not being fiscally responsible. Yeah, but they're when spending we- money to do infrastructure. A lot of times they have to finance that with bonds that takes care of a pressing municipal need that the officials are obligated to provide or at least should be providing their citizens. So if they don't make the investment either in the selling of bonds or other means, uh, which will provide a return for those who invest them, but uh, uh, yeah, the bottom line is important, but also uh, part of a municipality function is to serve the citizens with certain facilities that they need, like water, sewer, roads, things like that. It's kind of offensive to me, the way the word like profit rolls off his tongue, as if profit is this like horrible, awful thing. I want to point out something. We throw out the word profit, and from an accounting standpoint, a profit is very clear. A profit is the difference between your revenue and your expenses. If you're running an orphanage, 
You need to make a profit every year. You need to have more revenue than you have expenses. And if you go too many years where your expenses exceed your revenue, you're going to go out of business. It doesn't matter that you're an orphanage. It doesn't matter that you're doing the Lord's work and caring for disadvantaged children and doing all kinds of fantastic things that benefit society and benefit people. If you are not financially solvent, your orphanage is going to go out of business. It would be reckless, reckless for someone running an orphanage to just say, you know what, I'm not going to mind the balance sheet at all. I'm just going to spend because this is what's needed today. The same thing goes with a city. For someone like this to like throw out the word profit and say, oh, all you're interested in is making a profit, as if somehow the city's goal should not be to make a profit, should be, you know, we should be completely indifferent as to whether or not the city's long-term revenues are going to exceed their long-term expenses. To me, that's almost repugnant. I mean, it's just the height of irresponsibility. I feel here like there's a little bit of, I'll say, capture from the national political dialogue, and I'm going to get to that here. That's the third point I want to make, so maybe I'll just hold off on that one. But my gosh, When we are running cities, we have a responsibility, a moral responsibility to the people that we serve to be stewards of the public balance sheet, to make sure that our city is not just running in the black today, but that the investments that we're making are sound and that they're going to pay off and that they're going to at least help us break even in the future and not subjugate future generations to onerous taxation or onerous debt payments that they're just simply not going to be able to make. I was trying to be polite in the show, but when we got to that point, that was when I realized that, hey, we're on a completely different wavelength here and something needs to change in a big way. The second thing I wanted to bring up and point out was this dogma about how investments in infrastructure equal jobs. And let me just play one of those clips here too. It came up a number of times, but here's probably the most strident one. I, I disagree. I, I disagree with you. I think in, in terms of uh, running a city, it's an investment. You make an investment in these facilities to not only provide services to the citizens, but also as a catalyst to bring in jobs or to bring in economic activity. I try to be a little bit understanding of people when they bring up the jobs dogma. You know, we build infrastructure, we get jobs. The reason I try to be understanding is because, especially amongst people who are not of my generation, of the generation prior to me, I'm 40 years old, so I'm kind of soundly in the middle of Generation X. For baby boomers and for kind of late baby boomers, that has been their experience in life. You know, I've quoted Tom Friedman before who wrote the book That Used to Be Us, kind of a trip down memory lane for boomers. And one of the things that was kind of central to that book was, hey, we used to have the world's best infrastructure and we used to build all this stuff and it would create growth and it would create jobs. And every time we would go out and do this, there was this great payoff and great benefit to us. I try to be understanding of that because that is their experience. That was essentially the first generation of the suburban experiment. And then the second generation of the suburban experiment, which we financed through debt, had those same exact impacts. We were building places. We were expanding horizontally. The liabilities for what we were doing sat out there a generation or more, and we weren't having to deal with them. You know, everything was positive. This is the basis of the whole Ponzi scheme conversation that we've had here in the past. 
this horizontal style of development, particularly when it is financed by debt, by, you know, what they're calling here in this interview, public private partnerships, when it's financed by federal and state money, creates for us at the local government level an illusion of wealth. All of those costs, all those liabilities are buried. They don't come due for another generation. It will be the next generation that has to maintain that pipe, the next generation that has to fix that road, the next generation that has to patch that sidewalk up. Today's generation gets it paid for largely by somebody else. And so from the observer, from the person experiencing this, there certainly is a feeling and a sense that you know new investments in new things create growth, jobs, and opportunity. Here's the rub. You go around Huntington, which again, I'll say, just reiterate, I, I really love the place. I mean, I thought it was a great city, especially the core. But you go around to the edge of Huntington and you start looking at this and my gosh, you've got to believe this like a zealot to not have reality kind of slap you across the face. This is what I ran into in my hometown as well, because I, I grew up with this same dogma. And in my early days as an engineer, I certainly bought into this and believed this. But when I would look around my own community, and it just didn't seem to be working out that way, particularly not over the long term, I started to ask myself questions. Now, my hometown here in Brainerd is uh, suffering, Brainerd, Minnesota, but it's nothing like Huntington. We actually were wealthy enough here to tear down our stuff. In Huntington, a lot of the reasons why it's still such a great city is that they were too poor to tear a bunch of their stuff down. And so you've still got some of these great old buildings that are still there that are now in one stage or another of being reused. You still have these great old neighborhoods, some of the places that are boarded up, but these houses that are boarded up are just gorgeous. I mean, brick fronts, two and a half, three story, big, expansive structures, just gorgeous, gorgeous places that, you know, are abandoned or not being used or are being underutilized that certainly form the foundation of a really strong tax base. The thing is, you just have to look like a few blocks away from that to see how this system is not working out. If it created growth and jobs, it's a little like throwing gasoline on the fire and saying, well, the gasoline got the fire going. Yeah, it did for about two seconds. And then it went out because it sucked out all the oxygen. It just flashed and that was it. What we have done post-World War II is created the flash. The thing is, is that over time, the effect of that flash has diminished. The initial construction of the interstate system, huge impact. The widening of that system from a two-lane to a four-lane, from a four-lane to a six-lane, not nearly the transformative amount of impact as that initial investment. The same thing with our communities. We build that first life cycle of suburban expansion, the horizontal expansion. All of a sudden, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got your core neighborhoods, which are solid, built on that traditional style of development, very solid, great tax base. And really, at a period of time where we're able to start to address and fix some of the latent problems of the historic city, we're putting in good sewer and water infrastructure, we're cleaning things up. We're able to pave roads now, pave streets that have been dirt for generations. So, you know, these places are starting to get fixed up. At the same time, you've got this new, exciting, auto-oriented development on the periphery of the city. This is great. This is all working out wonderfully. But you go forward 40 years, 60 years, and you start to look at just the 
growth, stagnation, and decline cycle that is just obvious in all these places. I just question myself, when are we going to stop believing this dogma? I wrote an article last year about the baby boom generation and whether they can be expected to help us here in the economic transformation that we need to make. I think that's an open question. I don't know. A lot of boomers got really mad at me about that because they read our blog and they're into our stuff and they said, you know, don't lump us all together. But I got to say, when you grew up in a paradigm where new horizontal expansion meant new jobs, new growth, new opportunity, new wealth, I can see why a large percentage of that generation has a hard time realizing or a hard time coming to grips with the fact that it was all an illusion an illusion that we're having to pay for now that has made our cities enormously fragile financially. I get that, but we need to either move these people along, (laughs) which that may get me in some trouble with you guys. I don't mean that in any other way than just, I want to see some younger people in office or we need to uh, come to Jesus moment among some in this generation to look at our development pattern, look at our cities and say, wow, this belief system that we have developed is just based on an illusion and we need to start looking at things differently. But uh, you come across some, to me like you're anti-government, especially the federal government, maybe state and local governments that they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to manage their money. They don't know how to take care of infrastructure. And so you got to get someone like you or some think tank group to come in and, and show them how to do things. That, that doesn't sit well with me. It was interesting because I got the impression here, and I don't know if they used the words off the air to me or if they did say it on there. I can't remember, but... I got the sense that they were looking at me as some kind of snake oil salesman that was coming to town trying to sell some consulting services or get some huge contract to do some work there in the city instead of just coming to give like a lecture to actually talk to people and kind of raise some awareness. It was interesting to me. This is kind of the last point I want to make is about the government thing. This whole, you know, you're anti-government. And at one point, Gene Dean asked me, the federal government, are they a good example? In fact, let me play that clip because I, I thought that was just like a preposterous thing to ask. Do you think that the federal government is a good example for cities to follow? No, not at all. Oh, okay. Just no, wanted to make cities, that plain. I'm not a, I mean, I am a political person and I do understand politics and follow politics to a degree, although less today than I did even five years ago. When it comes to the work we do here at Strong Towns, I am sometimes kind of tone deaf to the political dogma. After my appearance here, they actually had their local congressman on who is a Democrat, and they were railing on him for not being boisterous enough in support of the Obamacare. I guess this congressman actually mentioned that maybe there should be some changes to it, and they were rather upset about this. It became apparent to me that they were approaching things from, I'll say, a dogmatically left side of the equation. I've never been asked a question like that one before. You know, do you think the federal government is a good example <laughs> for how local government should operate? I'm, I'm trying to even create a paradigm in which to answer that. I mean, do you mean the budget gridlock part of the federal government or the spend far more than you take in part of the federal government, the lack of focus, the tying up the budget 
in long-term commitments and entitlements, the lack of flexibility, the, you know, partisanship. I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure what part of the federal government that was meant to talk about. Let me just say this. I have a council member here in my hometown that just can't stand me. It's kind of sad because really at the local level here, we probably, if he would just get over his dogma, he'd probably really like what I'm saying and what I'm doing. His wife has actually told me, just keep working on him. He'll come around. I know what his hangup is, though. His hangup is that he looks at me as a Republican, as a conservative. And because of that, he puts me in a certain box. And that box is an enemy box. And so everything I say, I say, you know, We've got to be financially prudent. He hears that as we got to do tax cuts for corporations. When I say we've got to worry about the bottom line of the city, he says, well, you know, I hear that as you're just here to make a profit and make a buck. We have to be tough on ourselves and we have to, at the local level, get rid of the national paradigm that has been thrust on us from a political standpoint. I can't tell you how many council meetings I've been to where I've had dogmatically conservative people just rail against government, rail against all the things that we're trying to do, talk about government waste, do want to cut everything under the sun. I've also been at council meetings where dogmatically liberal people are there, you know, we need to raise everybody's taxes, we need to do all these different programs. No, we're not going to do any fiscal analysis. No, we don't need to look at any of this. To me, I think one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us at the local level is to allow ourselves intellectually to be captured and manipulated by the federal system and the debate that's going on politically at the federal level. I think it's dangerous. I think it's toxic for a city. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the signs for me when I walk into a place that a place is just dysfunctional. If the place has embraced at the local level, the national political parties and the national political dialogue, I just walk away. I'm like, this is, this place is not worth my time because these people are not thinking for themselves. Truly, I've come to believe, and we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. This is not a statement meant to get you to vote one way or the other. I have just found in the last few years doing this work here at Strong Towns that the dialogue at the national level has nothing to do with the core issues that are impacting people in this country. At best, at best, these are sideshow issues. And at worst, they're issues that are being put out there to manipulate us into doing certain things that benefit national political parties, national corporations national organizations and activist groups. I'm really disgusted by it all. Part of the reason why I kind of struggle with this is, you know, and didn't really know how to address these questions is because it, it just, it's completely irrelevant to what we're doing at the local level. I have people all the time ask me, Chuck, you need to get involved in politics. You need to start a political action committee. You need to start lobbying. You need a presence in Washington, D.C. There can't be anything more anathema to what I'm trying to do and what I see as a vision for not only the future of this organization, but the future of for just myself and this country. It would be the worst possible thing that we could do would be to get bogged down in all of that. That being said, let me give you in closing a little bit of my own personal 
political philosophy kind of as it ties into what we're talking about here at Strong Towns. My family, we're communists. <laughs> In my family situation, we are all for one and one for all. We, we take care of each other. When someone has some needs, we make sure that those are addressed. When someone is hurting, we help them. When someone needs a helping hand, we reach out. I, I don't make my children do certain things in order to get food or clothing or shelter. They're just given that regardless because we are a family and we live communally. I think that most people are that way in their own families. When you get to the block level, my neighbors directly next door, directly across the street, we help each other out. If somebody has a broken leg or an injury, may go over and snowplow their driveway for them. If someone's out of town, we'll keep an eye on their place. When the kids uh, are out messing around in the neighborhood and up to no good, we let each other know. The other day, my dogs got loose and my neighbors helped track them down. Yeah, we help each other out. We don't do it out of any financial gain. We don't do it expecting anything more than just you know neighborliness and kindness in return. But we live one step beyond that communal way that we do in my household at the block level. As you continue to go up then, the neighborhood level, the city level, the regional level, the state level, and finally the federal level, my scale of personal politics becomes more and more libertarian. At the federal government level, um, I think you could describe me, maybe not in the way that libertarians have been uh, portrayed today. I'm certainly not a dogmatic libertarian, obviously, but I tend to support policies that I think would be labeled more along the lines of, of a libertarian. I would like to see a minimalist federal government. I'd like to see minimal regulations, minimal intervention. I'd like to see a government that protected individual liberties, protected opportunities, and did far more to protect people than to regulate people, with all of those things kind of inverted down to the local level. I've said many times that our tax code is completely inverse. At the local level, we have the simplest tax code you can find. You know, cities are allowed to do one, two, maybe three different types of taxation. It's very simple. It's very blunt kind of an instrument. But at the federal government level, you've got tax codes that run into the thousands and thousands of pages with monstrous exceptions here and there and all these different nuances carved in. That should be completely inverse. You can't make micro policy at the federal level. You can only make it at the block level, at the city level, at the highest. City tax codes and city approaches should be very complicated. They should be very nuanced. They should be customized and tailored to that exact local economy. Do you have a manufacturing economy? Do you have a high-tech economy? Do you have a service economy? We have the same tax systems for all places, regardless of what their local economy is, but they're completely different. They should have all kinds of nuance to them. But at the federal level, we have a national economy. We should be able to have a very simple system, a very easy to understand, a very fair, a very pro-competitive and you know not subject to manipulation kind of system at the federal level. For some reason, we have difficulty thinking along a political paradigm. We have people who are left, we have people who are right, and they are left at the federal level, they are left at the local level, they are right at the federal level, they are right at the local level. Really, I don't think that's the way most people are. I really don't think that's the way most people are. I don't think that that 
is the way we have historically been. I don't think that's the country of Jefferson and the founding fathers and the people who, you know, wrote our Declaration of Independence, Madison putting together the Constitution. They certainly looked at the town hall meeting as the place where all the action would be. I embrace that. And I really do think one of the large dangers we've gotten into post-World War II is we become seduced by the capacity of centralized systems to accomplish a lot in a very short period of time. And I say seduced by that. It's a reality that centralized systems can accomplish a lot in a very short period of time. But what happens over time is that they become very fragile. They become self-reinforcing. They do not become self-correcting. And you get systems that, as is our current development pattern, incredibly, incredibly fragile. We now have policies, and these two yahoos I was on the radio show with talked about this. Without the federal government, we wouldn't have this Pullman Square project. We wouldn't have all these great things going on. We wouldn't have the interstate system, which is total BS. (laughs) All of that is. You look around at Huntington, and you look at all the things that are still there that were built before the Great Depression that are just amazing. And you're like, okay, you tell me this is a bad place before, I, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I think as Strong Towns advocates, we need to be prepared to, I don't want to say engage politically, because you're never going to find me standing up saying, support this party or support that party, or you're not going to find me getting all enthusiastic about federal elections, what goes on in the U.S. Congress, etc. But I do think that we have to be politically involved Our role, maybe, is not to be a moderating force. I mean, I don't think anybody in my town here would call me a moderating force, but the pragmatic force, the one who is not bound by the left-right paradigm, not bound by the generational dogma, not bound by the standard limitations of thought that persist today within our municipalities. We have to be the ones to stand up and get beyond that. I know that's easier said than done. And maybe that can be a New Year's resolution for me, a New Year's resolution for all of us listening here today to be that type of person within our communities. I don't have any problems. You know, I think a decade ago when I strongly identified with the Republican Party, which I I haven't for quite a while, a decade ago, I would have had a very hard time at the local level interacting with and understanding someone who identified strongly as a Democrat. Today, I have no such qualms. And I have no such qualms talking to people who identify themselves as Republicans. What I have difficulty with are people who dogmatically cling to those beliefs. These questions from these two questioners out of Huntington, do you think the federal government is a good role model for us? My gosh. The entire system (laughs) is the worst possible role model we can have at the local government level. So let's be the change. Let's be the people that break out of that. Let's be the group that rises. I don't want to say rises above politics like it's beneath us, but is the force within our political discourse that is not bound by the dogma of either party. Let's be those people. Let's be that change. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast this week. We are going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus here around Christmas. I'm not sure if this will be our last one or not, but I always take a little bit of time off at the end of this year. So wherever you're at, whatever you're celebrating, please be safe, have fun, 
And I hope you have a, a warm embrace of the people that you love and care about. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. Uh, I have a little bit of difficulty understanding where you're coming from. Uh, you talk about a, a kind of a Ponzi scheme growth. You talk about the post-development from World War II, which was 60-some years ago. Uh, what about the modern day where uh, there is uh, public-private partnerships, where bonds are issued, where infrastructure needs are met? Uh, uh, if I read you right, cities would have to wait till they have enough money to do anything before they could really uh, improve their infrastructure or replace it. 